I feel like we do ourselves a real disservice by uh, withholding joy from ourselves until we get to this like sparkling dangling carrot out in the future. So like, maybe you do want a book deal with like a top publisher. Okay, cool. But like, don't hold your happiness hostage until that, like there has to be something else along the way. There has to be joy in the process. There has to be like other points of fulfillment. And so I think that's where a lot of this comes down to for me is like, I'm very clear how much money is enough. I'm very clear that I don't want to do things or make things that I don't want to make. And so I guess that does lead me maybe in like a less traditional path. And that feels fine. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure people have opinions of the fact I was, I was really nervous to self-publish for a long time because I thought that people would look down on that. It's not a real book because you self-published it. And there might be people that think that literally, what do I care? What do I care? Like other people, what is that quote? Other people's opinions of me are none of my business, right? Like if someone thinks that my book isn't a real book because Random House didn't publish it, okay, I'm sleeping fine at night. <laughs> Nicole Antoinette is the creator of Wild Letters on Substack, where she has over 6,000 subscribers. She's also a long distance hiker. Her book, How to Be Alone, documents her 800 mile solo hike on the Arizona Trail and has a 4.6 out of five star rating on Amazon with 225 reviews. One reviewer writes, Nicole's writing is different. She's very clear about the struggles she went through hiking this, which in reality are struggles most of us will deal with on the trail. It's not glossed over for highlights of the trail like most other writers will emphasize. What's more, her writing is frequently frenetic, really zeroing in on the human thought process, all the ups and downs. It's enlightening, engaging, challenging, and humorous all at the same time. It's human. She recently released another book called What We Owe to Ourselves, documenting her 500-mile hike on the Colorado Trail. That's out on Amazon, bookshop.org, and Barnes & Noble now. The link is in the description. Nicole is without a doubt one of the most honest writers I've ever read, a truly one-of-a-kind human badass who, despite accomplishing things most of us would only dream of, seems to value showing her warts more than her lofty accomplishments. We need more people like her on the internet. I can't wait for you to meet her. Nicole, welcome. Wow, can you be my hype person? That's such a kind <laughs> intro. I should call you anytime I'm feeling bad about myself because that was amazing. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and yeah, and right when I'm doing my intro, of course, a helicopter flies overhead. I don't know if you heard that, but it's okay. Um, uh, so, all right, Nicole, I want to kind of start at the beginning. Um, you know, and I'm I'm talking about the very beginning. So. I read in, I think it was like one of your about pages on, on one of your websites. You have a lot of different places on the internet that, that, I've, that I've taken a look at, but you said being a working writer is a dream come true for you. So I'd love to know when did you first have that dream? Yeah, I don't remember a time that I wasn't writing or that I didn't enjoy writing. Um, so it's been a pretty consistent practice for most of my life. But for a long time, the path of being a working writer or what I thought my options were felt sort of limited to things that weren't really quite right or didn't feel like the right fit for me. Um, you know, I think about when I was in college or when I was in my early 20s, that the options as I saw them were, you know, you get a book deal, right? And it has to be a big enough book deal that you can live off of, right? That that's pretty rare or freelance writing or, you know, a staff writer, maybe at a magazine or another publication. And that those were sort of the three options that I saw. And none of those really appealed to me for various reasons. And so I knew that I wanted to be a working writer, but I didn't understand how I could make that happen for myself. So I don't want to say that I gave up on it, but since I wasn't interested in the paths that I saw, I just didn't really think about it much. And like a lot of things in my life decided that I would just kind of make it up myself as I went. Um, I've been writing weekly-ish personal essays uh, on the internet for 16 years, which feels very wild at this point. I feel like it's like almost my entire adult life. Um, whether that was blogging, right, in the baby blogging days or, you know, email newsletters or now on Substack. And for a long time that wasn't monetized and it, it wasn't monetized in a, in such a simple way until Substack came along, to be honest. But I did do a bunch of things over the years to almost like 
trick monetize it. I would put it under the umbrella of something else that someone was paying for. You know, they'd be paying for to support a podcast and also to get my writing. Or, you know, there were lots of ways that I tried to make it work, but it felt kind of clunky. And so what I love so much about Substack is that it is a platform where people pay for writing. You know, and it, it, that for me made that dream of being a working writer come true because the type of writing that I love to do the most is the weekly personal story sharing, the kind of real life in real time. And that always, I don't know, I, I for a long time, I struggled with feeling like that was real enough that I was like a real enough writer, you know, real writers write books. And obviously I have written a couple of books now, but, you know, write books or they have, you know, sexy bylines in the, you know, New Yorker, New York times. And I, I never pitched any of those places. I just wasn't that interested. I wanted to write the things that I wanted to write for my community of people who knew me and who wanted to stick around and write comments and build a relationship. And, you know, so it's only been in the last year or so that I feel like the, at least for now, those pieces have come together and it absolutely feels like a dream come true. But in a way that it was the thing that I didn't know was the dream because I was waiting for someone to create something like Substack, if that makes sense. Yes, makes plenty of sense. I have so many questions for you now. I, <laughs> okay, um, we're already gonna go off go off the uh, you know the questions I sent. So, one of my questions is just in the past like six or seven years, I've seen on the internet platforms like Medium and Substack pop up where you can get paid to write blog posts. You said you've been in this for sixteen years writing online. Um, I wonder what your view of platforms like medium and Substack are, or maybe let's, let's say the content that you see on the internet, where I feel like it, it feels, it doesn't feel super authentic all the time. It feels like people are just writing something because they think it's going to go viral and they're going to make a lot of money from it. That, that happens on medium all the time. You know, people just writing things that they think will go viral and they're just trying to make money from it. I, I feel like you've been at this for, for 16 years, like you said, and you've, and you write things that you that feel important to you, you know, and that's, that's your main goal. So like, how do you, how do you, do, do you notice that at all as a writer, like in, in these past couple of years, I mean, you've been at this for so long, like, have you seen like kind of like a progression in how, like the type of content that is online from now, for, as opposed to like when you started out? Yeah. I mean, I think on one hand, I'll say up front that I'm I'm probably like the worst person to ask industry style questions to because I mostly just don't pay attention, right? I've never written on Medium. I obviously know that it exists. I've read a thing or two here or there, but I'm, you know, when they talk about in tech, people who are early adopters, I'm a late adopter of pretty much everything, especially online. I like my life to be simple. I'm not into keeping track of a lot of stuff. I don't have the capacity and bandwidth to be just having so much information coming at me all the time, which is one of the reasons that I quit social media last year, which is something else we can talk about if you want. But I feel like the most honest thing that I can say about myself is that my tolerance for doing things I don't want to do is very low. And obviously there's things in life that we have to do that we don't want to do, but I think there's fewer of those things than we tell ourselves. And of course there's, you know, various intersecting privileges um, that play into that. But I feel like I only want to write about things that I want to write about. And this was sort of my issue when I said before that the paths didn't feel good to me. I'm not really interested in following trends. I'm not interested in like pitching things that I think are going to perform well. I really just like to make things that feel good to make with and for values aligned people at a pace that's sustainable to me with a focus on creative fulfillment, connection, and financial enoughness. That like, if I could give you sort of just like one sentence that I feel like sums up the way that I have built self-employment and built this weird career that has no elevator pitch, right? I've done so many different things in the last 16 years in my version of self-employment and being a working writer. And so yeah, I'm sure you're right that it's changed a lot. I can say, you know, I started my first WordPress blog. I mean, I had like a Zanga live journal, right? In whatever those days were, where it was basically just like an online diary. I was part of that crowd. I'm 38. So I'm that I was of that age. But my first WordPress blog, I started in July of 2007, right? So that's how long I've been doing this iteration of it. And blogging and the internet in general felt super different. Social media was really new. The comment sections were actually a place that you could make friends. And so many of the best people and things in my life came through the comment sections of blogs or came through social media. And I do think that that has changed to some degree. I see that coming back a little bit in places like Substack, especially behind a paywall. Um, I heard Liz Gilbert say on an interview the other day something about um, 
like the best thing about comments being behind a paywall is that haters won't pay to hate. So like less awful things happen in comment sections behind a paywall, right? And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. So um, yeah, I think I think that it's changed. And also I think that there's, I don't know. I think people can get sort of sanctimonious about writing and it has to be this like pure thing and it's not okay to write things that are going to perform well. And it's like, says who? If that's what someone genuinely wants to do is try to get millions and millions of views on their post on Medium because that supports whatever their personal definition of success is, cool. Like I'm not interested in telling other people what to do as writers. I just know that that doesn't work for me and I'm not interested in that. So why would I chase that? Which I don't know if that actually answers your question, but I'm just less concerned with what other people are doing really. Good. Um, I like that. Do you think that that's, do you think that not being too concerned with what other people are doing has been what, like, what are the pro what are the pros and cons of of doing that in your own creative life for you you know because there's um there was this there's this uh this quote that someone shared with me i forget who it was i think it was like a like a rapper went on some um some show some podcast and and they said my superpower is that i can't be influenced mm. um does 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 that make any sense to you like what do you have any do you have any thoughts on that do you think that that's been a superpower for you as well that you don't really pay attention to to what other people are doing i mean i think it's less binary than that for me it's not like you either pay attention and all you do is consume and think about what other people are doing or you live in like a you know vacuum silo where you don't pay attention at all i think either one of those is unsustainable to be honest um I am certainly influenceable, you know, and I'm no stranger to falling down really hurtful comparison traps, right? Or envy or jealousy of other writers or, you know, this, I would be lying if I said that that hasn't happened to me. I think that I have more skills at dealing with it now than maybe I did five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 16 years ago. So it's not that I don't pay attention at all because one of the lovely things I find about writing is being in writerly communities. So whether that's, um, you know, peers who are also writers or being part of a writing group, um, reading other newsletters that you absolutely love and like taking the time to engage in the comments, you know, setting a timer for 30 minutes once a week to actually post reviews on Amazon of the books that I love, because I know how much it means to me when people take the time to do that. So I think the never paying attention to what anyone else is doing and not thinking about it at all, that's, that's not what I meant. It's more, it's, it's interesting because I think there's nuance to this. It's more about being thoughtful about what I'm paying attention to and why. Um, and always checking in with myself, doing that extra gut check of if I'm defining success um, in a certain way as a writer or in any aspect of my life to really be like, where did that definition of success come from? And does that feel true for me, right? That it's certainly a version of success to get a million views on something. Right. And that's not good or bad. I think pretty much most success metrics, unless you're doing something really shady to make it happen, that they're neutral. But what's going to make the difference in how it feels if and when you reach that point is if you actually care about it, if it's actually giving you something that you want for more intrinsic reasons. And, you know, it's the both and of. I genuinely don't want to get a million views on anything. You know, I have friends who have gone viral in different ways and they have horror stories. Not to say it's always that way, but I'm sure there's people that have lovely stories, but I'm just not interested in that kind of exposure. Like it almost feels like overexposure to me. I had a pretty bad um, episode of like emotional relational burnout last summer that really came down to having been so accessible to so many thousands of people on so many platforms for so many years. And uh, so I'm still kind of working my way back from that and figuring out what a boundaries look like. It's one of the reasons that I pretty much only write behind the paywall on Substack. I like having a smaller audience, but the both and is I can't say that I don't care about readers because of course I want people to read my writing, right? It's just, it's looking at one of the questions that guides my life is this question of how much is enough, right? How much money is enough? Um, how many relationships are enough? And I don't mean enough to just like scrape by, but the feeling of enoughness, like of satisfaction, letting yourself be satisfied that there is enough hours in the day to write, meaning 
if I try to write for eight hours a day, I feel horrible. Like I don't have the capacity to do that. Maybe someone else does, but I don't. But if I'm writing for like 30 minutes to maybe an hour and a half, that feels incredible. Like I can then shut, even, even if what came out was crap and I'm not going to use it, I can shut my computer and be like, that was enough output for me today. And so I feel like a lot of my almost like spiritual practice, I would say, or my way of being is trying to actually be able to articulate both in words and metrics, and also in terms of understanding the embodied feeling within myself of what does enough feel like? And when I reached it, can I stop pursuing for the sake of pursuing? Because that like growth for the sake of growth is, does not interest me. Yeah. How did you, so you met, so thank you for clearing that up, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so it's not so much that you don't get influenced. It's that you just want to write what you want to write at, the, at that moment in time. Yep. Right. Okay. Um, you mentioned you, you, you went through a bout of burnout last year as, as someone who, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like you're, you're doing this full time, right? So as someone who's a full-time writer, who's going through burnout, how do you, how do you kind of get through that? You know, how, how did you, how did you wade, wade your way through, through that tough time last year? Yeah. So a couple things I work for myself full-time but writing is absolutely not the only piece of that puzzle. So, you know, I have what I call a tiny business and that's sort of in reference to this idea of enoughness. I'm not trying to hire employees. I'm not trying to, to, you know, grow to eight figures or whatever. Again, not that there's anything wrong with those things. Those just aren't my goals. So I have a tiny bit of business of which writing on Substack and selling books is one part, but that I, that wouldn't be enough money for me to live off of. So there's other aspects of my business and like offerings and things that I, whether it's like workshops or retreats, um, uh, you know, I host an online co-working group a couple of times a year. There's a bunch of different things that, like I said, I have a non-elevator pitchable business. It's, I, I basically create things that I want to create. Um, so, and I say that one, just for more transparency, but two, because I think that that helps me with burnout because I have never been someone who only wants to do one thing. And I struggled with that for a long time because I told myself this sort of fantasy story of like, you know, the writer who's in the villa in Tuscany and the only thing they have to think about is their writing and they just, you know, whatever. I actually don't want that. That feels like way too much pressure for me. I love writing. I would write even if I didn't make any money from it because I did for well over a decade, right? Right. Without making any money from it. So I think that, um, having other things that I care about is helpful with the burnout and the burnout, like I said, it wasn't writing specific. It was like exposure specific, I think. And it was also, you know, I don't know how, how deep you want to get into this, but there was definitely a Venn diagram of, I also had concurrently a pretty bad depressive episode. So there was the like actual body, you know, chemistry, nervous system, depression happening, and then the burnout. And there was definitely an overlap of the two, but it was sort of treating them both separately. So it was, it looked like getting on antidepressants for the first time, working with my doctor to find the right medication for me, and then also closing down some aspects of my business. So I ran a Patreon community for six and a half years. That was sort of the catch-all support for a lot of these projects. So people who wanted to get my writing, who wanted to support various podcast projects. It was sort of like support on Patreon and that gives you access to kind of all of these disparate things. Um, And I wound up shutting that down because I didn't have the capacity to run so many aspects of my business. And I wanted to focus more on writing, you know, on Substack. And uh, the big decision that I made from a writerly perspective was last summer, I only wrote for paid subscribers. And that was the main way that I addressed that because it wasn't that I didn't want to write. Writing myself through hard times has been like the saving grace of my life, to be honest. And I really like the sort of closing the loop of writing the thing, sharing the thing with the people, hearing from the people, okay, using that to write the next thing, that it's not enough for me to just write in a journal. I really do like the dialogue and the conversation of it. But for me to decide to do it behind a paywall, to have the financial reciprocity, to have an audience that was significantly smaller and to not feel like this could just go out anywhere in the ether on the internet, that really, really helped me. Okay. Awesome. How did you, so by the way, way, how did, how did that, um, did you see a big kind of difference in the amount of paid subscribers that ended up subscribing to you when you just went full paid? Absolutely. It's interesting because um, 
I try to run my business as much as possible from an anti-capitalist perspective. That's really important to me. And a financial accessibility is really important to me. And, you know, I, I think sometimes I can be a little bit naive um, about aspects of that, where pretty much everything that I was doing on Substack for the most part was free, or at least all of the writing was free. And the paid option was available for people who wanted to support it. And I think that there was a part of me that felt like, okay, everyone who has the resources to support this and loves getting it is going to pay for it. And, you know, that can help subsidize it being free for everyone else. And it was interesting when I switched to, for those two months doing paid only, my paid subscribers doubled. Uh, and that was interesting to me because it, I don't know, like pushed me to question some of what I, like, I don't think that the day that I decided to do that, all of those people suddenly got raises at their job that they could afford a thing that they couldn't afford. Right. And it was just a useful reminder that with so many, so many cool artists to support so many things being a subscription model. I mean, just like the entirety of late stage capitalism, like there's so many more things we want to pay for than we have the ability to pay for. At least that's my situation. And there does sometimes have to be a forcing function, right? Like a, a fork in the road of, do you like this enough to continue? Like, do you want to keep getting it? If so, you have to pay for it. And there was just, yeah, there's something in that that I'm still sort of parsing through um, because what I decided after those two months, what I decided felt best to me as a creator was to make the offering um, folks who are subscribed for free, they get one essay a month and everything else is for paid subscribers. And that feels great because it's almost like I think of it as two different offerings. For people who want a monthly newsletter, that's amazing. Here you go. It's free. And for people who want to be more involved in like having access to the comments and getting access to the podcast and like some of the other things that um, I'm offering and more frequent writing, then, you know, there's a paid offering for them. But yeah, the paid subscribers doubled and that was wild. Nicole, I want to talk a little bit. Thank you for that. I, I want to talk about your, your pricing tiers. Yeah. I, I, I've seen that. I, I, I went on your site. I saw like your workshops, how they have different pricing tiers based on people's financial situations and things like that. Can you just touch on that just a little bit to walk us through like like how you approach that, what, what, like why you do that, perhaps what it is. Um, I know I'm throwing a lot at you there. I'm sorry, no, but I just think no, it's no, interesting. And I, and I, and I want, I want my audience to, to see that there's another way that you can create workshops and courses and communities and all this, this these sorts of things, like what, the, as far as the pricing is concerned. So go yeah, ahead. Also, I love talking about money. So any, any opportunity to talk about money, I feel like it's one of those things that we think about all of the time. I don't want to make like too general of a statement, but I think people think about it all the time and there's a lot of taboo around talking about it. And that's like sort of one of my like secret missions of being in business for myself is just to talk about money a lot more. Um, I do a thing on my Substack. I used to do it for Patreon and I just moved it over to Substack called Tiny Business Letters, which it's basically like a monthly, like fully transparent behind the scenes of like how I run my business and like money and stuff. So TLDR, yes, love to talk about money. Um, my general belief is that someone's financial resources shouldn't be the sole determining factor of whether or not they can access what they need and want, right? So we could talk about that from like a systemic perspective of, you know, how much money you make at your job, whether you even are able to have a job shouldn't dictate if you can get healthcare or housing or food, right? So there's obviously some like larger systemic ways that this belief system plays out. But I think about one of the gifts privileges, responsibilities of working for yourself is in my mind, like building the world that you want to see in tiny ways. And like, do I think that me having sliding scale pricing tiers is going to change the world? No, but it's a way to act in a values aligned manner. And so, yeah, I've done lots of different things to get financial accessibility, like baked into my business. Like you said, um, I will often use a sliding scale pricing tier where there's, you know, a full price for an offering. There's a pay it forward tier for folks who have extra resources that they want to help supplement people on the lower end of the scale. Then, um, there's people, if the full price of something would be a real sacrifice for you, then you can pay a cheaper amount. I pretty much always have full scholarships. I offer long-term fee-free payment plans for some of my like more expensive offerings. Um, I've done, pay what you can things. I will say, so you mentioned the the two books, the adventure memoirs, which is funny because my books are about hiking and pretty much no other aspect of my business is, right? That's like, I don't, I, yes, I'll write about hiking sometimes on my subject, but my subject certainly not about hiking. But when I first, so both of those books are self-published, but when I first published them, the experiment that I did was I did them as 
pay what you can, like downloadable PDFs, because that for me was the lowest barrier to entry. I basically just like converted it into a PDF, made a cute little cover on Canva, like merged it together, uploaded it, and people could pay as low as $1. Or if they couldn't afford it, they could, you know, email me and I would send it to them for free. The suggested price was $19. And it was wild, the range of prices. You know, some people would pay $50. Some people would pay $100. Some people would pay the asking price. And over, I think with that, with the first book, selling it that way, it was just under 500 sales of the PDF style. It was like 480 something. And I had said the suggested price was $19. And the average, if you took that 480, you know, the amount of money that I made divided by that, it wound up coming out to 1850. So it like, it does, it did balance out, you know? So, but I will say, I don't think that that's necessarily true for everyone because these types of pricing models where you are essentially asked to pause and like consider the reality of your class position and your resources. Like sliding scale isn't meant to be, here's how you get a discount, right? That if you look at, you know, my understanding of like sort of the fundamentals of capitalism is like, if you're the person selling the thing, you want to get the most money for the least amount of work. And if you're the person buying the thing, you want to get the most you can possibly get out of something for the least amount of money. And that like always puts you know, the person creating the thing and the person buying the thing at odds or in some kind of like contentious relationship. And I'm not interested in any of that. So I feel like in order to have alternative pricing models, you need to be willing to do some financial education with your audience. Like I've been talking about money for so long. It's not like one day I was just like, here's sliding scale pricing, right? Like this was deep podcast episodes and talking about it and like taking my community through what I was thinking about when I was switching to these kinds a model. So it definitely took effort on my end. And I feel like now I've been doing it for long enough that most of the people in my space are pretty used to the fact that this is how it goes. And it's been honestly really heartwarming. I remember the first time that somebody paid the pay it forward price for something, I was crying because, and I'm not an easy crier, but just the fact that somebody chose to pay more for something than they had to, to help support someone who couldn't afford to be there that they would never even know that, you know, it's like an anonymous helping thing. I just felt like that's the world I want to live in. That's, that is what I want. So I'm always interested in, you know, alternative ways of doing things. Obviously Substack doesn't offer that, right. You have to choose a set price, which is fine because it's an accessible enough price. And, you know, if it's not, and people need free access, they can email me. Um, Just a technical question. So, so did you, did you, when you released your book, did you have that on your website or was it on Amazon? Like, could, could you do a, okay. Yeah. How, how did you do that? Yeah. Okay. So um, both of the books I did as pay what you can PDFs, you know, not both at the same time, right? There was the first one and then I wrote the second one and it was just on my website. So it was essentially like, and I was still on social media at that time. So I was promoting it through my email list and through social media. And then what I, I had always wanted to write a book like that, that was my sort of, if you get to the deathbed and haven't done it, you're going to feel regrets. And I thought that the dream was that I wanted a traditionally published book because there was something about the ego validation of like an agent has picked me and a publisher and editor have picked me. Like there was something about that that was very, very appealing. And it took me many years and a lot of kind of internal work to realize that I didn't need that validation. And it was, you know, the more friends that I made who were traditionally published authors, hearing stories of their great experiences and then also of their terrible experiences, it helped to at least contextualize this fantasy that I had, you know, that even if I were to go that route, there's no saying it's going to be perfect. So it really caused me to step back and say like, what do I actually want? And what of what I want can I control? Because I can't control if an agent signs me. I can't control if I get a book deal. I can't control what my advance is going to be. I can't control if my publisher is going to do any marketing. Like I have friends who have gotten deals with big publishers and their publisher did like no marketing for them. And so for me, it was, I really want to have a book that I wrote that I can hold in my hands. And for what it, it was just, I'm getting like goosebumps thinking about it. It was just this tangible, I, and yes, I did print out the PDF, right? When I was proofreading it, when it was a PDF style, but I wanted something that felt like a real book that was a real book. And I realized that I wanted that more than I wanted anything else. And that I didn't want to wait. And I had a couple of conversations with 
literary agents and like, you know, friends of mine, their agents. And the feedback that I was expecting about the books from them was the feedback that I got, which is it's too niche. Like they're day by day hiking adventures, right? That it's like, here's a 500 mile hike, day one, this day two this, that like, there's no, it's not like wild where there's like a larger, like a huge emotional arc that's related to other parts of the life. And not everyone's interested in that. I love those books. Like that's what got me into long distance hiking as a beginner in my early thirties. And so I was pretty clear that the book I wanted to write probably wasn't going to be viewed as like marketable in air quotes by more mainstream publishers. And that's it was really clarifying for me because the conversations I had with agents helped me check in with myself of, do I want to write a different book? Do I want to change this book? And the answer was no. And so then it was like, okay, cool. I'm going to do it myself. And so then it was, you know, creating the budget to hire a designer and get the book designed, um, like get a cover design, get the interior layouts done, both for paperback and for ebook. And the designer that I hired, I found her through a platform called Readsy, um, R-E-E-D-S-Y. It's like a, you can search for editors, you know, designers, all kinds of people in the like book making publishing space. And that was a really good experience. And so that's what I did. I got both books designed and I self-published them through Ingram Spark. That's the distributor that I used. And so I chose that because I didn't want it to be Amazon only. And I liked that, you know, with their distribution, it can go to libraries, it can go, you know, to lots of different places. And yeah, that's what I did. But I will tell you, it's funny going that I priced the books as low as I could to not lose money on them essentially. Cause like you have to give wholesalers like a pretty big discount in order for them to want to carry your book, like people like Amazon. So, I mean, I think I'm making like a dollar something on the paperbacks and maybe like, I'd have to check, but like $2 something on the eBooks. Like this is not, this is not a huge money-making adventure for me. I made a lot more money when I did them as pay what you can PDFs, right? And so that was also an interesting thing for me going forward. If the goal is this is a prod, like a writing project that like I want to be more income producing, then I will do it. I will sell it myself, right? And do it in a way that doesn't have the same kind of overhead costs. But really what I wanted was to be able to hold the book in my hands. So Nicole, it's, I've traveled a bit. Um, I haven't really done an, an 800 mile hike like you have. That's really cool. And I wonder when that idea kind of came to you to say, all right, I want to go and do this hike and I want to, I want to write about it. Or did you have those ideas separately? I, I, like when did, when did that, when did that come to you and what did that look like? Yeah. Um, I didn't grow up athletic or outdoorsy at all. I had never, you know, been on a sports team or done anything even remotely like that. The sort of origin story for me, um, in 2011, a month before my 26th birthday, I got sober, quit drinking. And through some miracle of the world, my decision was that I was going to quit drinking and I was going to start running on the same day. And I had never run outside of like a PE class type situation before. And I could barely run two minutes at a time, but I just, I don't know, something in me was like, this is going to be my way out of the hole. I'm going to, I'm going to have a, I'm going to transfer all of the energy of this thing that I'm trying to get out of my life and put it towards something else. And, um, so that's what I did. And I got really into running and I ran pretty seriously for four years. Obviously I'm like glossing over a lot of stuff, but, um, and it was great. And it like helped me get sober for sure. But I felt about four years into it, I wasn't enjoying running anymore and nothing was physically wrong. Excuse me. I was really fit. Things were going really well, but I was just really unhappy. And I realized it's because I was afraid that if I stopped running, I would start drinking again. So it was like almost doing it from this fear place. And that didn't feel good to me. And so I decided to take what I thought was going to be a couple week break from running. This was in 2015, spoiler alert. I've like barely run since then, um, which was great for me because that allowed me to do some of that like deeper work of sobriety that, you know, and just kind of like personal healing work that I had not been doing because I'd been so focused on this distraction of running. But what I found as time went on was that I really missed the physicality of it. I missed the challenge. I missed the feeling of what happens when you kind of get obsessed with a new thing and you've got 30 tabs open and all you want to do is research it and like read memoirs by people who have done it. And that's when I found long distance hiking. And I had never gone camping a night in my life. I had never gone backpacking. I was in my early thirties. Like my idea of the person who does that is like a tall bearded white dude in flannel who like grew up splitting wood, right? Like basically my partner. And, um, what happened, the magic of books, I found a book on Amazon. It was one of the like 
if you liked this, you might also like this, right? So in this case, yay for the algorithm, because uh, the book that was recommended to me is by my now friend, Carrot Quinn. It's called Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. And it's a story of her hike, um, her through hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. And also as like a beginner who started like in her early thirties. And I read this book and I was like, oh my God, people do this. Like someone just walks for five months and like they don't have to have experience to do it. And I got obsessed with this as the new thing. And that's how I got into long distance hiking. And the Arizona Trail, um, that's what my first book is about. That was my second long distance hike. And I didn't set out. It's not like I said, I want to write a book. I'm going to find something to write a book about. Um, But what I was doing uh, from when I first started long distance hiking, I was microblogging on Instagram. So I would write a little post for every single day of the hike. And so I was doing that on the Arizona trail and people seemed really into it. And I was also, I like had an idea in my head that I might want to turn it into some kind of a larger writing project. So I just kept really detailed notes. Like I had the writing that I did for Instagram. And then I kept, you know, at the end of every day, I would just like take as many notes as I could think of, of things that happened, um, for that day. And I came back from that hike And I decided, okay, this is going to be it. I'm finally going to write my first book. I'm going to do my first, you know, long-term writing project, longer writing project. And I wrote the first draft, you know, over however many months that took. And I was like, so proud of myself. And I was so jazzed and I got the thing printed out and I sat down to read it and I read it and it was so bad. And I was so discouraged by, like, I think about that Ira Glass quote about the difference, like the gap between your taste and your talent. And I was so discouraged by the book that I wanted to write in my head and like the reality of the book that I actually wrote that I literally threw out the printed thing. I hid the manuscript on my desktop from myself. I like put it in a bunch of different folders and I didn't look at it for two and a half years. And what happened was it was just this thing that was like gnawing at me in the back of my mind that what I, I didn't want the fact that the first try wasn't good enough to be the end of that story. Like I didn't like the story I was telling myself, you know, I'm just a weekly writer. I'm not someone who can do a longer book project. This isn't for me. I'm okay at writing, but I'm not good at editing. Like it was just like a really negative story. And I decided that just to change that narrative, I would edit it and edit it and get it to the point that I thought it was fun and that I liked it. And if I never did anything with it, I would allow myself to close that chapter. But it felt important for me to not give up just because I didn't think that it was good enough at first. And it also was like a very helpful ego check that I'm like, do I think I'm the only writer in the world who just like magically writes a perfect first draft and like never has to edit it? Like that's, no, that's delusional. So it also helped me be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Like, do you actually want to be a writer? Meaning like, do you want to be committed to the practice and the craft of writing and all that that entails? Who do you want to be when things get hard? Which was like one of the main questions that I took from long distance hiking, right? Like when things are hard, can I be a good friend to myself? And the answer for a long time was no. And editing this book and taking it through the stages, you know, in both books that have happened feel like an active friendship to myself. How, so let's, let's talk about that for a bit. I wanted to touch on that in this interview. Um, you know, you talk a lot about being a better friend to yourself and a lot of people read, um, sorry, a lot of people listening to this, um, are writers or people who are thinking about writing, but they're just terrified of putting their work out there and getting judged by people um, and feeling like their words don't matter or their thoughts and ideas don't matter, which is not true. Um, so how do you, what are some ways that you found to be a better friend to yourself, um, especially as a writer uh, in, in your in your creative journey? Yeah, um, I mean, I can share. <laughs> the like, first thing that comes to mind is both honest and pretty snarky. But when I think about periods of time in my life where everything that you just said, you know, about someone who might feel that way was true about me and sort of the, the question of like, well, how's that working for you? Like, is letting yourself obsess about this thing that you want, but are not actually doing like, is that working? Is that getting you where you want to be? Are you happy with that? Does that feel good? Right? Because for me, for better or worse, I feel like in order to make a change, I have to reach the point where the pain of not doing the thing outweighs the fear of the thing, even just by 1%. 
But I have found that I can't really force that. And that it's what happened with the book, right? It's what happened with so many things where like the pain of not doing it reached a point where it was just like a little bit worse than whatever fear I had about what people would think or, you know, whatever. And then I'm willing to do it. And so I guess on one hand, my like first thing that I would say is maybe you haven't reached that point yet. And not to say we have to wait until we're at some kind of like rock bottom. I certainly don't believe that. But I think that has been true for me. Yeah, the question of how is this working out for you, right? Like if there's a thing that you want and you keep thinking about it and not doing something about it, that does eat away at you or like that that has been my experience. And so trying the thing, even if you're afraid, at least lets you alleviate that what if feeling and the what's wrong with me that I'm not working on this feeling, right? It's like at least you get out of that, um, which has been useful. Something else that's been useful is I no longer see being afraid of something as a problem, right? Like if I waited as a writer, as a hiker, as anything, am I like, if I waited to a point where I'm like, and I feel completely ready and there's no fears, like it's probably boring, right? So like, I think a lot and write a lot about this idea of being able to hold the both and like being able to hold like two seemingly um, different things at the same time. You know, I used to think that I had to be in the mood to write in order to write or writing had to be easy in order for me to do it. This can also be true about running, about hiking, about anything, you know, or I had to not be afraid in order to do it when actually it's been incredibly freeing to realize I can be completely not in the mood to write and I can still make words appear on the page, right? I can be really afraid of the outcome of something and I can try anyway. And so opening up more space within myself to hold those complexities has been really useful. And then, you know, also, I'm so good, as I think a lot of us are, at finding things to be mean to myself about, right? So like this idea of being a better friend to myself as a writer, well, being a better friend to myself is very crucial to my well-being in general, but I feel really committed to not weaponizing writing, like my writing against myself. That there's just so many areas of my life that I can be mean to myself. Why would I take writing, which is this like beautiful practice that helps me understand myself and the world and helps me connect to other people, I actually don't need another weapon to not be nice to myself. So some of it is just the choice like to come back to day after day, week after week of, oh, cool, Nicole, you're doing that thing again. We're like using writing as a way to not be nice to yourself. How about we try not to do that, right? And I don't know, I just don't want it to be something else that I bludgeon myself with. I also think, you know, like I said, or I think I said, my sub stack is really about self-exploration and building a right fit life. That's like the through line that I, I write through. And so a lot of what I'm doing is asking questions. I'm a big fan of, you know, brain dumping in the journal, making lists. And, you know, if I think about myself in that fear place as a writer, some questions I feel like that have helped me is to first question, like, what does it even mean to be a successful writer? If we put successful in quotes, like, how would you define that? Because I I would bet your definition is different than mine, is different than someone listening's. There's probably some common elements, but a question of like, what are we viewing as success as a writer? Where did we get that definition? And how's that working? Um, when I'm saying that I want something as a writer, like, why do I want it? Right? Like, what is the underlying need or desire that I think getting that thing, right? Like, what do I think it's going to do for me to get a book deal, right? Like, what is the need or desire that I'm trying to fill? And like, really just doing a gut check of if those things matter and coming at it, maybe this sounds like a little bit clinical, but I like to break down some of these fears in a more practical way because if I just leave them in my head and I'm just like, these amorphous fears and I'm afraid of everything, I feel like that can really overwhelm my nervous system and make it so that I'm too afraid to do the thing that I want to do. But just asking some of these questions um, has been really useful for me. I don't know if any of that um, is what you were looking for, but that's how I think about it. It's great. It's great. Nicole, even when you like, I, any everything you're saying is just very helpful. Um, so I, I'm learning a lot, just me. So um Thank you. But yeah. okay. So I, I I wanted to ask a little bit about you. You talk a little bit about your values, your core values, yeah. um, and they are. And correct me if I'm wrong. From what from what I was reading on your on your newsletter, um, they're honesty, experimentation, connection, justice, and joy. So which one has been the most important for you as a writer, and why? Hmm. 
it's a good question because I think that I could speak to how all of them go, you know, into like, I think, I mean, I think honesty for sure. I'm a personal essay writer, a personal story sharer, and that only works if I'm writing what's true. Although I will say, especially um, in talking about the burnout and stuff from last year, something that I've been thinking about a lot is the balance between honesty and privacy. Like just because you're writing something true actually doesn't mean that any reader is entitled to more information than you'd like to give them. You can have really excellent, strong, supportive boundaries while still being really honest about the thing that you want to talk about. And I think sometimes I need to remind myself of that, that, you know, honesty and tell all aren't the same thing. And that just the sort of like, dumping every possible thing onto the reader, I don't think that's a generous thing to do. I think sometimes that's too much. So I would say honesty for sure. But the other ones definitely show up. You know, when I think about connection, if I wasn't committed to connection in my writing, I would just write in a journal, right? So like it definitely shows up. And, you know, something that I think about a lot is the idea of having a more writerly life. This is something, especially when I was in the lead up to publishing the books, thinking about all of the aspects of, you know, conventional success with writing that you don't have control over. And it felt really empowering for me to think about building a more writerly life and how could I do that like with these values of things that I can control. So like I can't control the number of readers on my Substack, but I can control how often I show up to my writing practice, right? Like I can't control how much money I make from writing, but I can have my weekly check-in call with a fellow writer friend where we celebrate our wins and set priorities for the week, right? So I think that um, a values-led writerly life is also feels really interesting to me. Um. Let's talk about joy just for a second, if 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 you want to, if if you'd like to. Um, so I, you know, you you talk a lot about today about how writing is sometimes hard. I mean, you have to like, for me, a lot of times I have to get through like the first twenty minutes to start enjoying a piece. It's definitely not a joyful experience, but then I get to that joyful part, and I'm like, oh man, I'm you know, the hours fly by, right? Um, so so when you say joy as one of your core values. What do you mean by that? What what does that what does that look like for you um in your creative life? Yeah. Um I think we collectively, um, myself for sure, can tend to put uh things that are hard on a pedestal that you know, something is only, you know, it's worth it because it's hard, right? Or if it's not hard, I'm doing something wrong or I'm not challenging myself enough. Like I think you know, some of this is capitalism, the like productivity hustle culture, there's like something in that. And so again, the both and of trying to allow it to be true that of course, writing is hard. Sometimes everything is hard sometimes like that's true, but almost not sucking the joy out of it by telling myself that it's always hard or it's always, it's gotta be a slog. It's gotta be a grind because that those are the things that we've been told have value, right? If you're grinding, if you're working really hard, I'm just like not that interested in that, to be honest. Like that doesn't, that kind of life, I, I want an easeful life, which obviously I like challenging myself. I'm going on multi hundred mile hikes, but I think it's something that I have really learned through long distance hiking is that it is a privilege to be able to choose your suffering. And I think about that in writing too, like nobody's making me do this. This is a choice. And if I'm like literally in agony all of the time doing it, what am I doing? I could get a different job, you know? So I think writing is the single area of my life where I encounter the most resistance. I'll say that. Like my house is never cleaner than when I'm avoiding the blank page. Like I'm really good at finding ways not to write for sure. So like the joy piece I think the joy for me comes from accepting who I actually am as a writer. I gave myself a hard time for years about the fact that I don't write every day. You know, real writers write every day. That was a story that I had told myself where, you know, you read Stephen King's On Writing, which I love, right? Right, the like lock yourself in the room, write 2,000 words a day, no matter what. And it's like, well, cool, but not everybody can do that. What if you have a day job? What if you have kids? What if you're caring for elderly parents? Like, it's just not right. There's a lot of the like writing advice that I question who it's actually for, to be honest. Um, but like accepting who I actually am as a writer, I need a little bit of an on-ramp is how I think about it. So what do I need to get into the writerly space? Okay, um, for some reason, I'm in my home office right now. Like I need both doors to be closed. It like seals in the energetics. I need to, especially if I'm writing for Substack, I will read a couple of the Substacks that are in my 
like email newsletter folder, other people's writing for a little bit, almost to like put myself in the mindset of, and this is where it goes back to when you were asking, like, do I not pay attention to other people? It's like, I like being part of a community of newsletter writers. It's almost like it takes, it takes the narcissism out of it for me a little bit, because it's very easy as a personal essay writer to like, think about myself so much and talk about myself so much and like, feel like, you know, either I'm so important or who am I to, I don't deserve to say anything, right? Like to kind of bounce back and forth between like self-doubt and extreme narcissism. And I think my friend Marley Grace talks about this idea of like being a worker amongst workers. And I love that. So I'll like read other people's newsletters to be like, okay, cool. I'm like showing up to my job as a newsletter writer today. Like these are my newsletter colleagues. And like that brings some joy to it for me. But I feel like with the joy piece, what works best for me is to not overvalue my feelings on any given day, but to really pay attention to my feelings over a longer period of time. So for example, if I don't feel joyful about writing a few days in one week, that's fine. Like I actually don't need to make that a problem. I don't, I'm so good at creating fake problems for myself. Also, I'll tell you that, right? Like I don't, I don't need to do that because I know that I can write regardless of whether I'm in the mood to write. And I have found that writing similar to certain kinds of exercise, I always feel good after I do it. I always feel good after I do it. And so sometimes I just need to be like, fine, this doesn't feel joyful, but you're going to feel better afterwards. Right. But if I'm feeling that lack of joy, or if it feels flat a few days a week for a month or for two months, like that's something to pay attention to. And that's when I start to make lists to help me problem solve. Like, where is this lack of delight coming from? Is it the pace of the writing? Am I expecting myself to churn out writing at a pace that doesn't feel sustainable? Is it that I'm feeling um, disillusioned because I'm not hitting certain external metrics that I want or need to hit? Is it something else? Like for me, really getting to like, try to understand why I'm feeling this way and like, what are some things that I could potentially try or experiment with to bring back more of a feeling of joy that tends to work for me? Yeah. Nicole, it, it talking to you, it seems to me that, you know, you do a lot of everything seems really organic with you. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that things aren't hard or you don't run into roadblocks or whatever, but it seems like doing the things that you want to do naturally leads you to, a place where you're making money, uh, making enough to, you know, where, where, where you're comfortable and you're also serving your own needs and you're serving the needs of your, your readers, right. And connecting with people and you're kind of accomplishing everything that you need just from kind of not just, just, just from letting things flow a little bit, you know, I hope that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. it's, it's just really interesting. You know, because I have, I, I have a lot of writer friends and they, you know, they, it, it, it just seems that everything is, and, and you said that this is fine, that if you want to go viral, if you want to have structure, if you want to like aim for that, that's completely fine. But I feel like with you, it, it's, it's more of just a really organic thing and you're here and you're thriving and it's led you to, I don't want to say like the promised land because nothing's perfect, but like it, it's led you to a a nice place. It seems like it's led you to a nice place. Um, do you look at it that way? Like has, do you think that that like keeping, keeping that, like that organic feel to what you do, doing what you want to do? Um, how important is that? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing this anymore if I, if I couldn't do it the way that I wanted to do it. Right. There are yeah. other options for making money. Right. So that's something that I like to remind myself of. And yeah, I think it all just comes down to being honest about how you want to spend your time, what feels fulfilling for you, how much money is enough, and starting to put together the pieces from there. And, you know, you mentioned having a lot of writer friends that want to go viral. Like, that's not a problem. Like, going viral is a neutral thing. I think it's something that you can't control, right? So, is it working for them emotionally to chase that metric? Maybe, yeah. Maybe the like high of the chase feels really good, you know? But I I think for me, because I, I don't feel like I've ever been like a particularly ambitious person, maybe in the like conventional sense. I have a very strong memory of graduating college and being like, and I am now done checking boxes for other people, right? Like that I am, I am good. I am now going to do the things that I want to do. I've never wanted like a big career, right? Capital B, capital C. Um, and so it's like looking at what are the things that motivate you, but I did have a lot of ego ambition. Like I wanted 
a huge audience. I don't think I had the self-awareness for this at the time, but like what I said I wanted was a huge audience, right? Or a lot of readers or having the thing go viral or a lot of engagement or being, you know, picked by the publisher, that kind of stuff. But it just took, honestly, I will say years of self-exploration and honesty to understand that what I actually wanted was what I thought those things would give me. A feeling of self-worth, um, other people thinking that I was important, you know, like we could, I'm sure we could make a big list of all the things that we think are going to happen from them. And which doesn't mean that I wouldn't also get creative fulfillment, right? Like I imagine people whose books are massive New York Times bestsellers and get turned into a movie, like that's probably incredibly fulfilling. And I'm all set. That's not like, it's just not what I want. And I think some acceptance for me around like a softer form of ambition about wanting a smaller life. Like I have a real problem with in like sort of the self-help space, especially, well, I was going to say especially directed at women, but I think this is potentially, you know, not a gender specific thing, but this, this idea that, you know, oh, you're playing small, you're holding yourself back. It's because you're afraid of visibility or that like any sense of enoughness or right sizing is like, a problem to be overcome. We're like supposed to want more. You're supposed to want the biggest, sexiest, most extreme version of the thing. It's not enough to like go for a run a couple of days a week because you like running. You need to be training for a 5k and then a 10k. And if you've done a half marathon, okay, well, what's next? What's next? Are you going to do a marathon? Are you going to do an ultra? And there's nothing wrong with that kind of progression. Like, hello, I'm, I want to hike thousands of miles, right? Like there's something that feels really good about right fit goal pursuit, but like the right fit is really the key there that like progression for the sake of progression, you know, more money when you have enough, like for what, why, you know? And I think that that for me, whether this is like an unpopular opinion or not, I just like cannot get myself excited about things that I don't care about. Like I, I do want a smaller life. I'm not, I'm, I, eh, you know, and I think I'm finally at the point where I don't feel ashamed of that. Like there's nothing wrong with not wanting something huge. And even if you do want something huge, I feel like we do ourselves a real disservice by uh, withholding joy from ourselves until we get to this like sparkling dangling carrot out in the future. So like, maybe you do want a book deal with like a top publisher. Okay, cool. But like, don't hold your happiness hostage until that, like there has to be something else along the way. There has to be joy in the process. There has to be like other points of fulfillment. And so I think that's where a lot of this comes down to for me is like, I'm very clear how much money is enough. I'm very clear that I don't want to do things or make things that I don't want to make. And so I guess that does lead me maybe in like a less traditional path. And that feels fine. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure people have opinions of the fact I was, I was really nervous to self-publish for a long time because I thought that people would look down on that. It's not a real book because you self-published it. And there might be people that think that literally, what do I care? What do I care? Like other people, what is that quote? Other people's opinions of me are none of my business, right? Like if someone thinks that my book isn't a real book because Random House didn't publish it, okay, I'm sleeping fine at night. <laughs> I I really vibed with that idea, that, that soft ambition. And there's an essay uh, on Wild Letters about soft ambition. Um, so if anybody wants to take a look, it's in the description. But I, yeah, Nicole, I, I really, I really love that idea um, because for the, like the past or, well, I don't know, I would say from like 2016 to about 2021 or 2022, uh, I just wanted to always do more. Like nothing was enough. I had to get more. I had to get more of everything. I wanted to start all of these different projects. I wanted to be everything. And I burned out uh, last year and also like le like late in 2022. And I was like, this just sucks. I, I, I don't, I don't want it. I don't, I, I don't, I don't. I don't really need all of that success. I don't really need like more of everything. I just want to write what I, what feels right to me. And I feel like that's, that's really the essence of what you talked a lot about today, you know, is, is, is that just make sure that whatever you're doing is feels right to you. It's so important because I know we talked, we talked a lot about viral writers and everything and, and, and it's fine to go to want to go viral, but I feel like a lot of people get misled into thinking like, 
oh, I have to like make all that money because this person's making all that money. And I'm jealous because I didn't want to do that. It's like, no, you don't want to do that. I can tell you, you probably don't want to do that. Um, yeah. And I think so much of this does come back to like this idea we, we talked about, about being a better friend to yourself. Like if I think about what the qualities are that I want in a friend, right? Like if I'm externalizing it, it's someone who's honest and compassionate, who cares about me, who will have um, honest conversations, who who shows up, who like loves me even on my bad days, all the things that we could list. And maybe the criteria is different for what you want in a friend or what someone else wants in a friend. But okay, so if I'm going to be a good friend to myself, then all of those things need to be true in my relationship with me. And I come back to that honest conversation piece a lot because I think so many of the issues that I struggled with for such a long time and still do, like I'm not saying any of this from this, like, and now I am enlightened and I figured out how to be a writer on the internet. Like, no, of course, there's still some times where I read a book that's so good that I literally throw it across the room because I'm like, fuck this person who's such a good writer. I'm never going to be that good of a writer. I want to set that book on fire and never write again. Like, let's be clear, that does happen. Um, but the more that I can ask myself, like, what do I actually want and why? And might there be other ways to get it than this one very narrow path that like the powers that be have told me is successful, right? That it's like for you, when you were chasing more and more and more, like, what are you trying to get from that? And can you get it another way, right? And you know, with the enoughness thing, like when I talk about financial enoughness, like I don't mean that I want just enough to like barely scrape by. I mean, like enough to thrive and feel good, but not be, you know, wealth hoarding. But what's enough for me is going to be really enough, like not the same as my friend who lives in LA and has three kids, right? Like his enough number is going to be like three or four times what mine is. So therefore our lives are going to be different. So I think that's also what gets missed when we're comparing ourselves to other people is like, you actually don't know their situation, right? Like money has to come from somewhere. And so if someone is a full-time writer, right? Like, is it coming if they're just writing books, right? And then that's the dream. Is it coming from their salary? Is it coming like as a writer? Is it coming from some like secret day job? Is it coming from their savings? Is it coming from their like a uh, corporate employed partner? Is it coming from a credit card? Like there's only so many places money can come from. And so it's like, I think the disservice that we do ourselves when we compare ourselves to other people without knowing their whole picture is it can make me feel like what's wrong with me that I can't X, Y, Z, when it's like our situations aren't the same, you know, like for someone to say, like, I feel like I'm a pretty prolific. Like I, I it's, it feels very good to me to write an essay every week. And I have some friends on Substack who are like, I want to write once or twice a month, like trying to keep up with that pace of what people like expect quote unquote on Substack feels horrible for them. For me, it feels great. So someone might be comparing themselves to my output and say, what's wrong with me that I can't do that. Literally nothing. I have no kids. I'm not that busy. Right. Like I, and that's the way my brain works. So I don't know all of that to say, like, what do you actually want? Why do you want it? Can you not be a jerk to yourself about it? That's what I think about. Yeah. Um, Nicole, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up here soon, but I, I wanted to ask, you've been at this for 16 years, um, writing online, let's say. That's um, wild. Anytime I hear someone say that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Like, I just feel like that's so long. Wow. <laughs> I know. That's how I feel too. So I'm like, ah, I started in like 2015. I'm like, man, that's almost like, that's nine years ago. So, uh, you know, basically a third of my life, but, mm -hmm. um, what do you, I sometimes think about this. Like I think about my future. Um, will I always be writing online? Um, you know, the internet kind of just came about in the past, what, 20 years or so. Like, how do you, how do you think about your future? Do you think that you're ever going to do something else? Um, you know, do you, do you think that you'll always love to, to write these, these personal essays? Um, how do you, how do you think about that? I don't think about it that often. Um, I will say last month, um, we had a power outage here in my town and the power was out at my house for 30 hours. And the internal crisis I had about how my entire job is fake when you get like, oh, I have to, if without the electrical grid and I can't log into the internet, that means like, okay, no Zoom, no Substack, no anything. My whole job is fake. I have no actual skills. The apocalypse is going to come. I'm totally fucked. Like, I like went to a very dark place, literally in the dark. I'm like sitting in the dark, like by candlelight being like, everything is fake. The internet's going to disappear. The end is here, right? So like, <laughs> 
I try not to think about the future too much because my, sometimes my view of the future can go in that direction where I'm like, cool, 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 impending societal collapse. Let me write my little blog. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think about it too much because I really trust my ability to figure it out. By which I mean, if you were to tell me, you know, you know, at any point in my life, if you were to give me a snapshot of the things that were coming for me in the like next two years, right? Like if you were to go back when I was 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 and say in the next two years, here's what's going to happen. I wouldn't have believed you, right? Like my life has taken so many wild turns. If you would have told like indoor bookish baby me that I would choose to spend months of the year pooping in the woods, like digging here. Like if someone was said, here's the little shovel that you have to dig a hole, shit in the hole, pack out your dirty toilet paper in a Ziploc in your backpack and throw it out in a McDonald's in town. Like never, 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 ever, ever. And so that actually brings me a lot of comfort because if I couldn't have predicted a lot of the cool and terrible and, you know, wonderful things that have happened to me. Why do I think that I can predict the future? I can't, but there's never been anything in my life or career that I haven't been able to figure it out. And so I, this is where the value of experimentation comes in. If I don't want to do something anymore, I'll just try something else because that has been true over the past 16 years of writing online, over the past 14 years of full-time self-employment, like I'll just figure it out. And I'd much rather put my energy into like reading a really good novel or like eating chocolate in the grass in my backyard than obsessing about whether or not I'm going to write on the internet in 10 years, to be honest. So that's how I feel about that. <laughs> I feel you. I'm I'm just sitting here. Like, it's funny. I'm, I just thought this, like my wife is literally up there in the loft and um, she's just listening to me laughing like every like five minutes, like there's a silence and then I just start laughing. And then she's probably like, what the hell is happening with this, this gringo here? All right. Um, so Nicole, I've had a lot of fun talking to you. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, I wanted to, I'm going to link everything that you do, like, like all of your workshops, all of your <laughs> communities. I'll link, to, I'll link to everything down below, but I wanted to ask you, um, is there anything specific that you'd like to shout out here? at the end. And and if you have any final thoughts, feel free to go ahead and say them as well. No, I mean, I'm, I'm very findable online, right? Um, if people are interested in my Substack um, or the books are, the link is backpackingbooks.com. But again, it's like, if you're not interested in long distance hiking, it's that it's funny when I talk about my books where it's like, okay, that's one segment of my business and everything else is something totally different. So I think one of my favorite things about, you know, podcasts or interviews, I think you'd get a really good sense if you're into somebody's vibe or not. Right. So yeah. if you're into my vibe and want to hang out on the internet, I'm very findable. Um, but no, nothing in particular that I want to shout out. Okay, cool. Um, but you, you made that really easy. That's how I typically answer that too. I'm like, just go to my website or something. I don't know, dude. Um, so yeah, I'll link everything down below. Um, so Nicole, thank you. Thank you so much. It was an honor. It was so much fun. I, again, I learned a bunch. I'm sure a lot of other people will learn um, a lot too listening to this. And um, I hope if you're listening that you go follow Nicole. So um, Nicole, thank you. Thank you so much once again. Thanks for having me. Love talking about writing. It was delightful. <laughs>